welcome to the Yen Zanita podcast, where we explore the fabric of Black identities through culture, food, art, life experiences, and more, sharing the stories of international creators. I'm Kamara. Hi, everyone. I'm Heather, and we are your co-hosts. Thank you to those of you coming back to the table to dine with us, and welcome to all of our new listeners. I'm excited for what we have planned today, but before we get started on our main course um, and bring them to the table, we're going to see what else is on the menu. So let's get our meal started off for today and jump right into our topic for today. Mm-hmm. We're going to look at, you know, following your own path or not necessarily following a traditional path, which is something, especially in the arts world, there is sometimes a pressure to follow a particular pathway and go down certain routes, do particular mm-hmm. training and things like that. What are your thoughts on that, Heather? Yeah, I mean, I've always had the notion that there's no one way to get to your destination. And just as unique as every individual is on this earth is the same way that our our journeys through life and to our careers and our purpose, it'll be just as unique. You know, there are definitely blueprints out there that you can follow, but it's really special when you can also create a new blueprint. And that's how you I think that's how the arts and anything, any skill or any career, that's how it gets better is when people continue to make new and more innovative and uh, creative pathways to get mm-hmm. to something. What about you? Yeah, definitely. I guess, especially when you look at the industries that both of us come from, dance, there is that pressure to go to, you know, a good and inverted commas uh, school mm-hmm. And things like that. And if you don't go to the right school, then maybe the next step won't won't necessarily happen. But I mm-hmm. think what's positive, especially nowadays in, in 2020, is that there are examples of so many people doing doing it other ways, you know, with yeah. social media as well. Just there is no right no way, way anymore. Yeah. yeah. I definitely know that pressure of, trying to do it the right way or the one way that you think you can do something. I'm recalling the mm-hmm. time where I was applying for colleges, for universities, for my bachelor's degree. And, you know, I wanted to go to the to the Ailey School, to Ailey Fordham. I mm-hmm. thought that was the only way yeah. to do it, to get to that place of mm-hmm. like an international dance career. I thought that was it. And I didn't get in. I did like an early admission application where you find out your decision like in the fall of your senior year rather than the spring and I didn't get accepted I was so devastated you know it really Mm -hmm. kind of like (laughs) kind of gut punched me a bit Mm -hmm. and then you know I got up from that and kept going and got into other schools which you know later obviously I'm here I live in London I'm not in the states I've traveled and performed around the world and you know when I got to my professional companies touring and stuff like that yes I was there with people who did go to the Ailey Fordham school but we were at the same place do you know what I mean mm-hmm. we got to the same yeah. destination and you know we've we propelled ourselves and each of us the people that I've danced with who had somewhat of the one pathway I thought I needed we've all gone on to do great things in our own mm-hmm. way so it just brings more unique voices when we're not all coming from the same place. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. So, yeah, so I guess that is an important thing to remember. And even, 
even as an adult and a professional that's had, you know, a range of experiences, it is something that I know I need to remember as well mm. that, you know, when perhaps if you have specific goals or you have specific intentions that you want to go down a particular pathway that doesn't pan out the way you hope, there is yeah. always a reason for that and there is always another another way to do things and to achieve the same thing that you want to achieve. And yeah. most times it works out it works out better, you know. Mm-hmm. There's often a reason why certain doors or certain pathways didn't happen for you. So it is a good yeah. thing to remember. It's a really good message to remember. Forge your own pathway. Yeah. And it also makes up who you are as a person. Like you mm-hmm. wouldn't be who you are if it weren't for those experiences and those journeys. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So you wouldn't bring that artistic value or cre- uh, perspective to something if you didn't have that as part of, of who you are. Yeah. So I think that's a good uh, note for us to finish on and something to, to ponder on. Yeah. That notion of just the, all the pathways that you take make you the person that you are. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we're going to take a little break. And then when we come back, we'll be bringing our guests to the table. We'll be right back. And welcome back. It's time for our dinner guests. We have filmmaker Beth Okoto here today. But before he comes to the virtual table, I'll share a little bit about him. Raised in London and Accra, Bath left school at 18 and eventually found filmmaking as a framework to begin making sense of the world. His visual practice is anchored to the exploration of social constructs and nature through the moving image. Bath's work is always interested in the fluidity of visual grammar, emotional truths, and notions of self-perception. He is exhibited at the Institute of Contemporary Art, ICA, in London and directed drama for the BBC and the UK's Channel 4. In recent years, he's been tipped as a star of tomorrow by Screen International and named on the BBC New Talent Hot List, making him wonder if all this means he gets to make a living as an artist. Welcome back to the Yams and Yuka table. Thanks for having me. It's really interesting to read that you wonder after all of those accomplishments, whether you can make a living as an artist. One of the main things that you understand, maybe not in the beginning, but certainly when you've been, you know, doing this for a while and talk to other types of creatives in various sectors is that most of us for a long time, with rare exceptions, you know, we, we do this and it's not a financially secure decision right Mm -hmm. it's not anything that's going to be buying your mum a new house (laughs) yeah (laughs) not anytime soon but you know there there are very obvious and uh, wonderful exceptions and lightning can strike in whatever field you're in you know Mm -hmm. and then as much as those should be celebrated and, and tend to be celebrated and in certain industries probably are over celebrated yeah the reality is that most creatives are not necessarily earning a living from the thing that they want to be earning a living from right there's supplementary income streams and i mean we're all little in little businesses right we're all little freelance businesses Mm -hmm. we're all sort of 
looking at various revenue streams that tend to trickle in and ebbs and flows and, and ultimately you, you, you get by. And if you're lucky enough, you sort of consolidate those things and you do more than get by and you can, you can construct a life, you know, from doing the thing that you love or are compelled to do. But yeah, in my observation, it's not a given. Yeah. We want to hear about, you know, kind of how, how you got to where you are today and, and what, the, what the state of your work is now. So can you tell us, Beth, what's a significant memory that you had growing up that shaped who you are today? Wow. How long is this podcast? <laughs> Talk freely. It's all right. We want to get to know you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Structurally, the the most significant thing that happened to me growing up was moving from London, West London, where I was born, to Ghana, right, mm-hmm. as, as a young teenager to finish secondary school. And um, it's not necessarily the that one meeting or that one incident that was more than an incident. It was something that took me out of my environment and put me into another environment mm-hmm. and in an environment where, you know, I mean, yes, my family's Ashanti. We were all raised understanding that cultural heritage in the sort of West London context. But yeah, when you, when you move somewhere where you have the, that sort of, I don't know what the word is. So to be very simplistic, when you move from a place where you are, considered marginal and the word you know minority and ethnic minority and Mm -hmm. even if you grow up understanding and knowing about your various heritage cultures Mm -hmm. you walk out the door and that's your reality right so moving to Ghana and you know I'd visited and I've been there as a kid and as a baby and you know we'd been going back regularly but moving there going to school there and that was, yeah, at that sort of time, you know, those early teen years, it's, it's pretty formative. Yeah. And I mean, right now it's, it's just part of my personal sort of story and journey and it was what we made of it. So just talking about making that move back to Ghana, what kind of adjustments did you have to make for yourself? Like, was there something mentally that had to shift for you? Was, what was that shift like for you in your identity? I can't really put my finger on it I think it would have been a time anyway even if I'd stayed in London that I would have been going through a lot of changes and tackling a lot of those same things right just in a different context I do sometimes wonder about the parallel universe where I didn't go back to Ghana and what that Uh, is like right now yeah because that's that's always a fun game to, to play but yeah I don't really remember too much about what was happening in my head in real time mm-hmm. beyond just the regular things of new kid, new school, mm-hmm. funny accent, you know, just getting to grips with new ways of doing things. And am I going to be making friends easily or am I not the curriculum? All, all of that stuff, you know? Yeah. And that was, that was very real at the time. I think the looking back, moving from, London and you know being considered a minority and going to somewhere like Ghana where you walk out your door and everybody 
for better or worse, is, you know, looks like you, right? Yeah. And yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. the whole representation thing evaporates yeah. instantly. Right. Instantly. Even, you know, this was early 90s, you know, the level of engagement with the wider diaspora just from being in Ghana, right? So that was the first time I listened to someone like Lucky Dubé, right? South African reggae. I was like, I thought reggae was Jamaican. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But Lucky Dubé, before he died tragically, was huge, you know, not just in Ghana, but across the continent, you know. Mm -hmm. At the time, anyway, it was the first time I'd really had, like, a peer group that was listening to kind of all sorts of, of black music from, you know, Yvonne Chaka Chaka, Angelique Joe. Yeah, even American hip hop at the time, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't, mm-hmm. it wasn't like you could get imports in record shops in London, right? If you went looking, but you had to go looking. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But there was that little stretch in the, what was it? late 93 there was that little stretch when the first outcast album came out mm. the first wu-tang album came out you know the mm-hmm. Tribal quest dropped their third album it was like this rich kind of vein in like hip-hop history again looking back you realize it now but at the time it was just stuff people were listening to listening to at school right and yeah. i just remember it was just very it was like osmosis whereas that sort of music at the time in London for my age group if I was older mate it probably might have been a bit different I guess but for my age group like 13 or whatever 14 not having an older brother or older siblings older you know what I mean that that wouldn't mm. have been stuff I could have come by that easily mm. right but yeah I just remember it being just very different and yeah with hindsight it was very nourishing now that you're asking me to think mm-hmm. back on it but yeah, at the time, in real time, it was a bit of a pain in the ass, to be honest. <laughs> How long were you there for? Till I was 18, 19. Wow. Mm-hmm. And so you mentioned how in London you were kind of an ethnic minority and in, in Ghana you were, you know, surrounded by other people who looked like you. What impact do you think that had on you? I think it subconsciously would have been... It has been quite grounding. Mm. It's almost like you go to the woodshed, right? You go, you get your culture, and you come back. <laughs> <laughs> you come back into the diaspora wards, all the stuff that, you know, you got to deal with as part of the diaspora here in in London, in the, in the British context. But, yeah, mm-hmm. gen- generally in the kind of European and North American and, you know, other contexts too. But like it's it's interesting that well I guess I didn't know this at the time but it, yeah subsequently as I've moved around a bit more and travelled a bit more to you know other parts of the continent and South America the Caribbean North America and you interact with other people of African descent in various parts of the diaspora and you hear about what's happening in Colombia what's happening in Spain what's happening in Guadeloupe you know. It's it's remarkable how similar our experiences are. Yeah. Even though they are mm. very specific, you know, like the the Lucifer context is very different from the you know the British context. But it's you talk to people in uh, Covadamora, 
who are from Sao Tome or you talk to people in Birmingham who are from St. Lucia, you know, mm-hmm. and you talk to a couple of people from a couple of different generations and there's very similar patterns emerge. Mm. yeah so there's a very universal nature yeah yeah but like oh you know all of that that's that's stuff that i'm very interested in in and i'm i guess yeah the work i'm doing now is is about those sorts of connections and those sorts of shared cultural inheritances primarily i guess in the in that post-colonial context but the, the sort of grounding for all of that really in terms of like recognizing cultural influences and just recognizing influences in in the diaspora touched on all of that is yeah my my own kind of journey through growing up as an ashanti in london and and continuing that in ghana so mm-hmm. i think that's all had a an effect it's interesting how it does you know really embed itself into your life how does your culture continue to influence the choices that you made throughout your life and that you continue to make man you're with the big questions today innit Kamara? <laughs> you want to know the real bath yeah <laughs> not the instagram bath the real bath yeah, my instagram's weak i need to i need to beef it you know what when, when i first moved back it was it was interesting because you know you you skip like, even now i talk to people and they talk to me about stuff that was happening in 95 or 96 like very specifically that those two years right and i wasn't around you know right i was you know i was i was busy being formed you know having my formative years elsewhere so there's like a little cultural kind of gap right in 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 the british context very specifically Mm -hmm. in in that sort of british context with my peers and I remember when I first came back, it was, I, I felt that. I was like, okay, I'm not quite the same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was fine, but it was a bit disorientating. And when I first moved back, I, I didn't go to university, right? After, you know, at that sort of age where a lot of my friends were. So I was just out in the workforce in Blair's Britain as an 18-year-old black kid who didn't quite fit. Like, you know, I wasn't Matthew from Desmond's, right? I wasn't the I wasn't the student. Yeah. You know what I mean? The African student. And I wasn't like yeah, and you know, I didn't have those same sort of reference points growing up as maybe other brethren who who had become sort of, you know, older teenagers in London. Mm-hmm. Right. So it was an interesting time. Mm-hmm. But there was a craving. I remember like, I I had a chance to kind of run, say run, but to spend some time in Uganda not mm-hmm. long after that through some work I was doing. And I was like, yeah, I ran after that. I was like, yeah, I'll go back to Africa, definitely. Yeah. I was really keen to go back to the continent and you know being in uganda as well was like a 19 year old or whatever working it was it was interesting it was the first time i'd been on my own on the continent not in ghana right like so suddenly i'm actually a foreigner and it was it was lovely again doing that thing where you're drawing the parallels between what you do know what your what your references are mm-hmm. for kind of 
yeah, different different facets of culture. Mm. So yeah, I, I remember that was that was a really interesting time, and then yeah, I came back to London, and I became a dad. Yeah, I became a dad really young, actually. At how old was I? Was twenty, and that that was like a whole new chapter of my life. Yeah, I can imagine.、Mm-hmm. Can you talk a bit more about your time in in Uganda? Kind of what those experiences were like being on your own, away from home, in a, in a sense, but still carrying home. I imagine if you're making those references and comparisons to that new experience, can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't remember as a kid. Having many friends or interactions with people from that part of the world,、mm. yeah, lo- loads of Caribbean friends, loads of Nigerian friends, loads of Ghanaian friends. Yeah, I used to hang out in Cote d'Ivoire with my dad. You know, so it was very much West African and、mm-hmm. West Indian culture. So that's what I found quite interesting was for the first time. You know, just being exposed to East Africa, right? Yeah. Luanda, the language, Kampala was, you know,、mm-hmm. it's, it's more so now. I hear I haven't been back for a while, but it was a big sort of busting capital city, but it wasn't quite Accra, you know. So, <laughs> and it was, and you know, I'd heard about. East African Gujaratis and Idi Amin and that whole—I'd heard about that, but I hadn't really, I'd, you know, I'd never come across any real life kind of experience of it. So, yeah, it was—it was just really interesting to kind of experience that.、Mm. So you've traveled quite a bit. You've lived in different places for varying amounts of time, and you have—you know—you're a Shanti, but you. Lived in London, also had some time in Accra. Where do you consider home? What do you feel is home for you? That's a good question. <laughs> home is it's a combination of things, I guess.、Mm. Primarily, I guess wherever my mum is, that's important. That always feels like home. Where is your mum now? You'll have to ask her. She's all over the place. Oh, <laughs> that's fun. <laughs> No, she's she's retired now, and her grandkids are spread between the UK and Ghana. So okay, so okay. she's she's always trying to maximize time with her, the third generation. Yeah,、mm-hmm. but yeah, so there's that, and then the other obvious answer is just you know with my kids, wherever that may be as well. But yeah, yeah we're all based here in London, or well, the UK. Nice. So, with that in mind, what what's your favorite food from home? Wherever your mom is, what's your favorite food? Ah,、oh, it's obviously my mom's jollof, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> obviously. I mean, Ghana jollof is the best. I mean, you know. <laughs> I'm not going to get into this debate, no conversation at all. So it's like talking about football. It's a bit of a waste of、yeah. time. You know, <laughs> at least in football, you can have like objective things like we won X or we won that. But like the Jalof debate, I mean, it's just who's got time for that?、Yeah. But it's interesting. Like when I was in、um, when I first went to Dakar and tried just the you know Chebudien and Mafit, like just widening my palate 
beyond just mm-hmm. like Ghanaian staples, you know, yeah. or Nigerian staples. There's so many claims to jollof, and you know the wolof. Yes, it's wolof. It's a tribe in you know uh, Western kind of Gambia, Senegal, but like they have a very legit claim to be originators of this jollof mm-hmm. thing. But they're just a quieter people, you know. They're just quiet and they just get on with their lives, and I mm. quite like that. Mm. Nice. And do you have a special memory or experience? with any particular favorite food learning to cook rice Mm. was was, um i don't know if it was fun but it was interesting because my older sister my younger brother between the three of us and we're quite close together so we all kind of went through this phase where there was just always burnt rice (laughs) lingering that smell (laughs) lingering around the kitchen right and i don't know if it's any different now well, I mean, not for me, like my kids still learn how to cook without a rice cooker. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure if my mum had, yeah, she could have minimized the burning with the rice cooker. But yeah, I, I feel like a rice cooker means you're cheating. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I'm a big fan of a rice cooker. I'll, I'll say, you know. Listen, I, I love them. I, 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 <laughs> and, uh... As I've gotten familiar with them as an adult, I, I, I really enjoyed them. Because you can like, chip in some corned beef and it, like mm. they're just really versatile but i don't have one right and yeah. it does it does feel like you're cheating so kamara sort yourself out <laughs> <laughs> but do, do you know what it is it's because we used to have we used to have students stay with us from from asia chinese students and the first thing they would bring is it's a rice cooker. cooker but that's the thing i know i know i know in east asia the rice cookers are a huge thing South mm. Asia, I'm not so sure, but you know, yeah, just it just wasn't it wasn't a thing. Like, it was... yeah, you learn how to cook it in the pot. I witnessed Eugene with his mom learning how to cook different traditional foods, and I've witnessed other people come into the house and like they come specifically to her to learn how to make the jollof or to how to make achimo or whatever, and the discipline. Do you know what I mean? Like the way that this is, it's very interesting to witness. Mm-hmm. And no measurements. Yeah, none. No, you have to no. To the ancestors to know when it's right. <laughs> <laughs> and that, and that's the thing. Like when you're teaching younger people, you really need to um, be prepared to pay the consequences of that. So overcooked, yeah. oversalted, yeah. you know, burnt. But you know, like you, you can't be uh, short on the patience. Mm-mm, you cannot at all. I would say I have learned to cook rice better now that I've been in the house with Ghanaians because before I was definitely burning rice up and down. Definitely. See, it's like <laughs> everyone's got to go to the right, the burning rice woodshed and pay your yeah. yeah, It's a rite of passage, though, in a way. It is. You got to burn a few pots. You before burn you get a few pots, rice. exactly. Because you, you have to know what it feels like to clean that burnt rice. <laughs> That's the thing. That could be a metaphor for life. You have to burn a few pots. I'm going to stick with my rice cooker. Don't judge me, people. Okay, I'm happy with my choices. Too late. Too late. late. I'll I'll, I'll take that, but I feel confident in my choices. So thinking about, you know, using that metaphor, you have to burn a few pots. I think that's a good one. Mm. And let's, let's bring it back to your career. What actually inspired you to decide to a career in film 
I don't know. I think it was a process of elimination. Yeah. I mean, I grew up with people who knew. I got a particular cousin I'm thinking about who's had a mayor recently because he's in the NHS. He's a, he's a doctor. Mm-hmm. But he knew he wanted to be a doctor from when we were 11 years old. Right. Mm, right. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think much of it, but like the older I got, you know, particularly before I, I settled on doing this, what I do now, I did remember him and I was like, how did he know? Like what, what made him yeah. so sure and adamant? And, you know, I think back to the things I wanted to do back then and come on, like, you know, I wanted to be John Barnes, right? I thought mm-hmm. it was just, it's, it's just the thing that people ask you, what do you want to do when you grow up? And you just throw out obvious and silly answers but yeah i was always impressed that he stayed that course and even within that he's changed direction at least once majorly maybe more times um within the medical profession but yeah he was all you know he knew that was the direction of travel for me it was uh different it wasn't anything that i really thought too much about if i'm honest Mm. about what do you want to do when you grow up but it became a function of purpose, I think. Mm. It became a function of purpose and figuring out what that was. So it helped that I was a bit older and yeah. in my twenties. Mm-hmm. When I when I sort of decided to do this. And also I think I I kind of soft pedaled a, a little bit. Like I did bits in the music industry. You know, never never like creatively i was always like uh around it like working for labels plug-in promotion doing bits for <laughs> yeah, i used to do bits for different artists which was interesting music artists like mm-hmm. i did an internship once for a guy called well he's called danger mouse now but um at the time he was sort of djing and in london and getting his really focused on craft you know and that was that was really that was really informative kind of being around that because I I never really grew up with artistry or craftsmanship you know beyond kitchen life that we just discussed yes (laughs) Um, and that and that was you know that was a thing and you know when I was 16 after my uh, GCSEs before I did A levels I, I spent a summer in a kitchen being a trainee chef and you know my mum worked in kitchens so yeah it, that felt like a natural environment but I was I knew what that was and I was familiar with it you know the bad tempered hot kitchen with people screaming at you for fucking things up that yeah I knew that from home right <laughs> yeah <laughs> so when I was doing the music stuff that was just yeah you know I loved I loved music and yeah I was doing various things I used to run a live music night and like I said, work for labels and whatnot. But it was being adjacent to artistry that was a bit of an eye-opener. And again, like, you don't really, at the time, whatever, you just sort of take it in your stride, right? But, like, looking back, it was it was definitely a thing. And whether I was sort of, you know, commissioning remixes from producers that I, I was enamoured with or interning for an artist like Danger Mouse just, literally as he was getting his first record deal and you know before just before he sort of blew up and became like a global phenomenon 
and just understanding very intimately the day-to-day -day work that went with that, the processes that went with sort of feeding into a bigger machine. But, you know, being able to distinguish between the, the hype machine and getting number one records and stuff and just literally trying stuff out on a sequencer and, you know, sampling this and sampling that and trying to do this. And, you know, that was quite um, informative. The film thing came about when I decided very specifically that music was for young people and no one could grow old gracefully in the music industry. Mm. <laughs> I decided that I'm very aware that there are exceptions to that rule, but certainly mm -hmm. the trajectory I was on at the time, um, it wasn't that fulfilling and there was not going to be a happy ending. So I got off that train and I went to a college when I was 23 years old. So I was quite advanced, you know. Mm -hmm. I wasn't the oldest, maturest student around, but yeah, I was, I was in class with a bunch of 19-year-olds. And when you're 23, 19, you know, it's, it feels like a big gap, you know. Yeah, well, because you've had life experiences that they haven't had yet. Yeah, still looking back, I was still pretty young myself, you know. Yeah. But yeah, I was a dad. I'd been out and about doing bits. Well-traveled, lived a little bit more. A little bit, a little bit. Yeah. But it was a place called Ravensbourne, and um, Ravensbourne was a place full of creatives and creative kids, and it was it was interesting. It was yeah eye opening in that sense that it normalized it normalized being wanky and navel gazing and self indulgent and introspection in the sort of pursuit of artistry. It, it normalized that. Not that I was doing anything like that there. I was uh, I was doing an engineering course, two-year engineering thing for um, broadcast engineering. So we were just learning about video specs and satellite transponders and, yeah, radio frequency. It was all very boring <laughs> and not creative at all. But... It stood me in good stead, though, because this is all the sort of technology that underpins what I do right. now, right, in terms of video and films and digital mm -hmm. and, you know, how that all kind of fits together and makes the sausage. So it was handy. But, yeah, be, being in that environment was pretty instrumental in kind of how I ended up making film because I was with a lot of people who were very confident and clear in their intentions to pursue film careers. Mm. Mostly, I mean, it's not a film school. You know, there's a fashion school there. It's a lot of kids doing, at the time, um, their one-year foundation courses that would take them into, you know, art school or film school or wherever else they wanted to go. Mm -hmm. There was, uh, yeah, architecture. There was product design. There was graphic design you know so it was just being around all of those people yeah yeah do you feel like you came kind of came into your own creative space and like I don't want to prescribe that you found yourself but you mentioned something about normalizing being different and you said you felt like growing up you you were kind of different you had cultural gaps you know when you were away do you feel like you kind of found something there when you when you got to this 
at college? No, nah, not really. No, okay. Not not in that not in that sense. What what I found at the college was uh, just, I was just immersed in different processes. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. how different creatives went about their work. Mm-hmm. So just being immersed in creativity. Yeah, but then you you kind of figure out your own kind of um, way to utilize procedures, technology, tools in the service of pursuing your own agenda, right? Mm-hmm. But at that point, being there, being at Ravensbourne, it was more about just being immersed in those processes. But my personal kind of viewpoint on the world, yeah, that was still mine and yet to be shared. Mm-hmm. And and probably, you know, I didn't have the confidence at the time at 23 to share it, right, as a function of not, of being new to these processes and this technology and and not really um, having indulged it before. So when did you find that confidence? Like, what was that turning point for you? Uh, it's incremental. Mm. It was incremental. I think the first thing I did was I produced a couple of music videos for a friend from there who was, he was big into it. This kid was big into his hip hop. He was... He's a lot younger than me, and there was this thing that happened where um, he wasn't that much younger than me. What am I trying to say? <laughs> there was a moment where hip hop culture in the UK felt new to a lot of people, mm. a lot of young people, mm-hmm. and and it was it was, I guess it felt strange because I, I probably had that moment in '93, right, when I as a 13 year old when I went to Ghana and being like immersed in it and really sort of just having that be the water I sort of swam through. Mm-hmm. But there was a moment in, in London when that was like a thing and it was it was kind of, it was, yeah. And like, you know, I guess Danger Mouse was part of that. He was like the resident yeah. DJ at Tony, Vinnie and Seth's shop in Soho, Deal Real. You couldn't walk down Carnaby Street on a Friday without being like swamped with hip hop kids right mm-hmm. back then and this dude who was making this video was part of that generation so i made yeah i produced a couple of videos for him and that was my first sort of attempt at making the sausage right just um yeah <laughs> really jumping into it and helping something come to fruition but it was it was a look at the logistics of it because you know i wasn't yeah. really equipped at the time to kind of think about directing mm-hmm. and you know the way I saw it I was there to kind of help the director do what they wanted to do not to kind of chip mm-hmm. in and weigh in and between the director and the artist at the time you know there's plenty of creativity going on and I was like the logistical backbone of that mm-hmm. and that was and that was a good learning curve so did you burn the pot or was the rice perfect it was cool. We made we made some. Yeah, it was it was it was all right. It was all right. It was, okay. I, I enjoyed making it. It was uh, the director was happy. The artist was happy. Good. So yeah, it was cool. I, I mean, I think I, yeah, I might have burnt a few bridges because you know when you're producing, you're blagging, you're blagging a lot. Mm. You're asking for a lot of favors, <laughs> and you're doing things at that level that isn't necessarily sustainable, right? Like, mm. Yeah, whatever well, once, but if they see you again, they'll call the cops or whatever. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> that sounds like a story. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, but yeah, it went it went well. It went all right. And then I went into the news and current affairs and in a technical capacity to do with what I'd been studying. But the effect of that was to be around a lot of production, like just all the time and very quick mm-hmm. production. You know, news production iterates like nothing else. You know, it, it's got to be now. It's got to be immediate. And the people who make that particular sausage are very skilled in doing that you know i mean now it's very polarizing depending on you know which news organization you're talking about and what their mm-hmm. editorial leanings are blah 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 but like the fact is broadcast news is is an incredible machine and a really incredible place to just watch some some world-class production happening before your eyes quickly from nothing to um, you know three four minute package or whatever it might be yeah you're sourcing pictures from all four corners of the world right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so um that was really informative you've done a lot of things around film what are some of the different roles that you've played within film and which do you enjoy the most and why in the film context well i mean there's a journey to go from sort of understanding production to kind of understanding cinema, right? Mm-hmm. So understanding production is is a solid backbone. Under, and, you know, having a technical grounding in what you need to do to kind of create and deliver is, is important. But I think that it was very apparent to me that I, I didn't want to necessarily direct news or be a creator in the news realm so when i understood that Mm. it was it took me a while to just kind of really think about it and really figure out what i wanted to do Mm -hmm. so i'm just trying to think back to the chronology of it all because it all just sort of blends into like a five-year block doesn't it so what happened as best I can recall, was that being a news producer or news director or, you know, didn't interest me. But back to the first thing we spoke about, it is a wonderful kind of way to kind of stay paid. <laughs> and and also there's there's lots to be learned from it, right? And that was that was the thing, like, you know, I wasn't about to go to film school or could afford to film school but the more I thought about cinema the more I started just looking up various film people film directors very specifically and trying to understand what they did and what their responsibilities were and what it was that made them middling or special in not just my humble opinion but sort of you know you sort of take the temperature of critics or box office or whatever the metric is to kind of determine how somebody in a very subjective field is quote unquote good at their job right so that was a big and it it still is a a big part of how i started to sort of just hone in on what it is i wanted to do and how i wanted to do it and just trying to really answer that question that I'm always asking myself in terms of what is cinematic or is this cinematic, right? And 
it's a bit of a wanky question, but it's very pertinent and it's always pertinent, but particularly now when cinemas are literally under attack economically and, you know, we've, we were in the middle of this streaming revolution. And since that time, the way people consume cinema, quote unquote cinema, has been completely disrupted, right? So it's a live question and it always needs revisiting and, and answering. Mm-hmm. But, but back to kind of, you know, the chronology and the journey, I think that when I started understanding that, you know, people like Robert Rodriguez, who's an incredible filmmaker and his story and his journey is is atypical and remarkable and triumphant. But a big part of his journey was sort of, you know, he came out of newsrooms, right? Mm-hmm. You look around and you understand that people like Sean Bobbitt, who's the cinematographer who shoots all the Steve McQueen stuff. Robert Deakins, who just won an Oscar for 1917, has another one. Chris Menges, who's a contemporary of Deakins, and he has two Oscars from the 80s. Barry Aykroyd, who's the current chair of the uh, British Society of Cinematographers. You know, I mean, even Declan Quinn in America. Like, There, there, there is a whole kind of... Um, lineage of people who come out of news current affairs and documentary mm. who who are operating at the highest levels of cinema today and have done for the last 20 30 years so understanding that was a huge help for me to figure out that from where i was to where i wanted to go there was a road that had been traveled well traveled and i just needed to sort of pay attention to that road you know, and extrapolating that out into kind of what I needed to do next, it was very clear that I needed to, to start. If I was going to do this, and it took me a while to try and figure that out, uh, and part of that was helping out friends on film sets or, or their short film sets or, mm-hmm. you know, holding the boom mic for them or, um, you know, I mentioned the producing, and it was it was little things like that. But once I decided I, I wanted to do this and I, I did want to direct, then it was very important for me to start directing. <laughs> it sounds like mm-hmm. a simple thing, but it's incredible how many people don't do that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had contemporary, I had friends of mine who had left Ravensbourne and went to the National Film School, got scholarships to the National Film School. And... You know, at a certain level, I started bumping into more people who'd gone to the National Film School. And you can't be in this industry, in this country, and not find them everywhere in sort yeah. of TV and cinema. They're solid training, and they, they, they always get a leg into the industry. So it's not a bad thing to go there. But um, I remember a fr- another friend and director friend of mine, Destiny, she and I sort of started out around the same time. And we were we were like oh do we need to go to film school now are we missing the trip? i think we're supposed to do yeah <laughs> yeah but it was a question it was a real question and yeah and i mean not not to say that yeah you can just get up and get into the nfts right it's a really hard school to get into mm-hmm. but we weren't trying <laughs> we were like should we be yeah. trying um in the end we she and i both decided not to for our various reasons 
-hmm. But for me, it was very much instead of doing that, I spent three years deciding to learn how to make a documentary, a feature film, a feature documentary that would be a serious endeavor and I would commit to and get done or, tr or die trying, you know? Mm -hmm. so that so that those three years making that project was kind of like my film school and it was it was the first time I committed to telling a, a long form narrative story that was for public consumption mm -hmm. yeah so in a parallel universe where you did go to film school where are you probably making really expensive tv drama <laughs> right now i don't know i don't know you know it's funny the after i made that documentary and it it, it kind of it did way better than i thought it would do but it then got me uh well that and a couple of other smaller kind of more visual experimental type things usually back then i was doing those things in the sort of music video or commercial space i didn't i didn't do them a lot but they were sort of places where you could i found myself to be a lot freer to do more um interesting visual things but um after the documentary and that did well and i'd done a couple of these shorter things and i think i'd done a short scripted film with the support of film london this is a big shout out to film london Mm. and skills yeah skill set and screen skills they're called now but they they've been instrumental in um supporting me when i was new and they gave me a little bit of money to make a scripted film but it was like a program too so i was being supported as a complete novice i'd never worked with actors or scripts or anything like that mm. with my with my news and current affairs and documentary background so mm -hmm. The way it was being run by a wonderful woman called Dion Walker, who was being assisted by Steph Akinyelere. But yeah, it was Dion Walker running that program at Camden Council with Steph Akinyelere. And they put together a really lovely structure so that a novice like me could step in. And they had like different film professionals, older, more experienced, to who were great and they were just fully in service of trying to kind of get your idea out as best it could. So I had like a lovely little three minute short film, which I cast my mates in and it was in French for some reason, cause I was being a bit wanky. I watched a lot of French cinema back then. And yeah, so when I finished the doc, I had these uh, quite an interesting reel. Like I had a feature documentary that had been sort of written up quite well critically and had been in the cinemas around London. Mm -hmm. done all right in the festivals i had this little short film from um film london sort of camden borough sort of pot of money and then i had a really interesting kind of couple of commercials slash music things and that got me onto my first tv directing gig which was for channel four mm -hmm. and that was the moment really because you know, up until that point, I'd been like one of those dudes in the bedroom, sort of just chipping away at stuff with like my three friends. But yeah. that was that was really the moment when I really got to see the industry, quote unquote, and 
And by that, I guess, really sort of understand just how things work, right? How you get work. And I mean, I guess that came later. But in that moment, I just got to meet a bunch of different contemporaries like who I just didn't know existed. And uh, I didn't know they existed because a lot of them were film school kids. A lot of them were theatre kids. Mm-hmm. And then you had, you know, a few vagabonds like me who didn't fall into either of those and, you know, sort mm-hmm. of carved their own furrow. But, these, you know, the, these were the people I was... They, they did this thing where they sort of bring together the uh, long-listed contestants of, like, a reality show without any cameras... And um, they put you through like a week or four days of just workshopping, and it was it was lovely actually. It was mm-hmm. you know, it's what I imagine film school might be like, right? Mm. But yeah, it was it was it was it was great. It was really fun and very playful. They brought in a bunch of different actors, and you know, I guess that was the first time I'd worked with professional actors instead of casting friends. Yeah. Uh, yeah, as a casting director, and I'd never met one of those before. Like, what would you, you do? Yeah, it was it was very playful and um, and fun. I mean, it was more fun because yeah. I got the gig afterwards. Like, of course. <laughs> a good mate of mine now. He, he was who I met that on that thing. He um, he didn't get in, and he was pissed. <laughs> but he's got back now, so he's fine. But yeah, it was it was just a very interesting sort of introduction to kind of all these other people who had had these different avenues just to get to the the very same place that I was same place yeah Yeah. and that's what I'm picking up is like you have definitely gone I use this in air quotes off the beaten path but you've you've looked at you know those that have forged a well-traveled pathway to kind of help guide you to where you wanted to get and so what challenges have you faced you know you've talked about some of them but can you just kind of really pinpoint some of the ones that you face that really shifted you in what you what you've done? It's interesting because you know if, if I take your word challenge to kind of focus on frustrations, then I think it would have to be the the kind of horse race of TV, like being a jobbing <laughs> TV director. And mm-hmm. I imagine, I don't know personally because I haven't done it and I don't necessarily pay that much attention, but I imagine it's the same thing that um, commercials directors have to deal with just more mm-hmm. often, more iteratively and, mm-hmm. and massively more so, you know, my acting friends and colleagues, you, you know, I've been on that other side of that table more often than, yeah. um, I'd like to admit when you know you're 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 auditioning actors and they're coming in and you know mm-hmm. it's a necessary part of the process but it's grueling you know yeah and uh, it can be thankless mm-hmm. people talk about representation in the media industry in the TV industry and the one area or the couple of areas that I've I've seen progress in in my sort of lifetime in the industry has definitely been you know the needles sort of shifting a bit in front of the camera right that's Mm -hmm. that's, there's no two ways about it we're in a post kind of moonlight black panther uh girls trip world and those sort of fallacies that 
black leads can't carry things are mm-hmm. slowly going away. They're still there. I'm you know trying to make a couple of movies at the moment, and these are still conversations that we're having. Yeah. But yeah, um, five years ago, those things hadn't happened, right? Those high watermarks yeah. hadn't happened. Yeah. And similarly, I think behind the camera, I I know of more black and brown writers earning a living as writers. Mm. Whether they're getting produced or not, that's a whole nother conversation. Yeah. But you can you can earn a steady living doing writing jobs for film and TV, particularly TV drama. Mm-hmm. You know, there's always development happening. People are always spending development money and that pipeline needs to be filled, right? So, yeah, yeah even if you're not getting things made on British TV or out of the British production system, it's still a solid, noticeable to me, and it's just anecdotal, not scientific by any means, an increase mm-hmm. in black and brown writers who are being paid to write television drama. That's promising. Yeah, hopefully that translates into actual productions. Right. But the the thing that isn't shifting and is, if anything, going backwards according to the statistical analysis by people like Directors UK, who's like the directing guild or union here in the UK, in, in the UK yeah, those, those stats aren't changing. Black and brown directors are not mm. making comparable strides. And and probably mm-hmm. more more importantly, you know, companies, production companies owned by black and brown folks are not being commissioned to make things either. Right? That mm-hmm. yeah. But those things are really um fundamental. And if if they're not moving, then everything else is really just Perfect. cosmetic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in my own personal kind of context. I've felt that glass ceiling for a couple of years when I was trying to make the jump into bigger and better TV after I'd gotten a really solid grounding in some more entry-level TV work and felt I was ready to make that leap. But yeah, the industry had other ideas for me. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that was the biggest challenge. It was, it was, there was a real kind of couple of years where I was really just not making headway in terms of trying to get to the next level of television and you know you got to be philosophical about these things and understand that as frustrating as that is you know the universe is talking you kind of you got to listen right otherwise you know it's going to be tears so that was around the same time that i you know I really had been interested and sort of making little baby steps in doing the work I'm doing now. Mm. But I hadn't really committed to it, you know, and I hadn't really studied it properly to kind of understand how I could commit to it, right? And and be fully kind of submerged in just pursuing kind of that pure visual creativity, the artistry. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, the leap from going from, I don't know, regular Quissy blogs in the middle of the street, right, to being Quissy blogs, the creative, right, mm. which is where mm-hmm. I was, and then leaping again to becoming Quissy blogs, the artist. And mm. that, that, that was the thing that, you know, 
was born out of that frustration, I think, looking back was, well, you know, if 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 this isn't really going to run and I'm hurting my pretty little head up against this glass ceiling, yeah, I can and I should just kind of embrace the artistry because that's the thing that, what's that phrase now? Sparks joy? Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, yes. It doesn't bring joy. Yes. Yes. Yeah. What do you say now? Do you think you found your joy? Do you, do you know what your purpose is? My purpose has been apparent for a very long time, right? And that's very much, you know, a decolonizing agenda and purpose born of, you know, learning about the ways of the world through cinema, through art, through music, through books, through my dad's West Africa magazines back in the 80s, you know, through my mum's ebony magazines back in the 90s, you know. It's, you know, purpose presents itself to you sooner or later. Mm. And it's your choice whether you listen to it or not. But, yeah, if you if and when you choose to listen to it, I think assessing the tools at your disposal is the thing, right? Constantly assessing the tools at your disposal. And that never really stops. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So we're rounding up here, but before we, we head off, what advice would you give to your younger self? How young? Uh, pick an age. It's up to you. Which one needs to hear it the most? Which bath? I don't know. It's, it's a toss-up between the one who didn't go see Inception in the cinema <gasps> and instead took his daughter to see something fatuous and terrible. You didn't go see Inception <laughs> in the cinema? Nah, man. I had, my daughter was like, can we go see this instead? And I was like, okay. <laughs> and I knew it was a bad idea at the time, you know. But yeah, now I'm the king of inappropriate movies for my youngest. So um, we're making up for bad decisions. My younger self, I don't know. I don't tend to regret things too much. Mm. So it's, it's hard to kind of, you know, with that outlook, it's hard to kind of... Give yourself advice. Yeah. Well, let's flip it. What advice would you give a young creative looking to pursue a career in film? Firstly, I'd be very curious to find out if I can dissuade them. Why is that? Because <laughs> it's hard out here, man. It's hard out yeah. here. And, you know, there's, there's an opportunity cost to that decision, Mr. Mm. or Ms. Young Person. And that, those are things that I think need to be discussed, you know, and you need to be very clear about. But if you're convinced that you're, you know, masochistic enough to come join us then i would try and get you to figure out exactly which roles interest you mm -hmm. and you kind of got to just start doing stuff to figure that out and once you figure out which roles you want to hone in on then it would be a case of studying the craft right because every role has a craft attached to it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you got, you kind of got to study your craft and look who came before you. And well, and if it's something more creative as opposed to logistical, you know, if you want to be a grip, then go be the best grip in the world, you know. Mm -hmm. And there's some people who are, who have a rightful claim to that right now on, on in various sort of countries, 
both sides of the Atlantic on various continents. So, you know, just go study your game and go study who is at the top of that game, wherever mm-hmm. you may be. If you are intent on doing something a bit more creative, then the sooner you start to encounter and recognize your influences and your you know which then sort of helps you craft your own lineage and where you fit into the sort of pantheon of film history it sounds really grand when i say that <laughs> but yeah it's important to kind of understand where you fit yeah and part of doing that you know for me was really you know when you encounter things and people and people's work past work or contemporaries who click and you know you you resonate with their work and you internalize that as part of your own kind of bedrock mm. of influence that you you draw from consciously or subconsciously you know yeah so I'd, I'd just say yeah if you're not going to film school to do that then just do it on your own figure out what you like what clicks with you and start cataloging that I literally start writing it down and find yeah. find more like it and explore and you know if you're trying to be a creative in film I think it's gonna help you no end to encounter and explore your influences nice well we're gonna head back to the kitchen for the last bit of this conversation gotta know uh, what do you prefer yams or yuca and how do you like them cooked um yams yams yeah very quick yes and give it to me perfect meal cassava chips are wicked okay first time i ever went to the american south louisiana Mm -hmm. to visit a an ex-girlfriend of mine who was at louisiana state she took me on a i guess it was a bit of a tour i mean the whole trip was a tour yeah from new orleans for the first time pre-katrina new orleans to uh yeah like baton rouge and whatever but there was a place we went to and that was the first time i'd ever had soul food right like mm-hmm. black american soul food and mm-hmm. the the yams well, they weren't the yams i was expecting like i thought i knew what yams were in the Ghanaian. yeah country. the african yams yeah. yeah and but they were just gorgeous man they were like mashed and they were sweet and they were oh, yeah yeah so that was good oh, that, my goodness. That, was, that was wonderful yeah nice and what's the perfect meal for that meal yeah you gotta help us out we're, we're coming up with the cookbook really that's the plan so we've gotten so many good recipes from people we, we want to hear how to pair these items best i mean what so i can't have jollof is that what you're saying you could. Well, you can have jollof with your cassava chips if that's or with that's your the yam. Meal. Yeah, tell us what the meal is. It's a bit much, though, isn't it? Like <laughs> two sets of carbs. I mean, I've seen some plates at some African functions. You got your rice. You got your meat. Yeah. It's all there. You got your yeah. <laughs> yeah. My son and I recently have been watching. Um, do you know who Zena Sarawiwa is? No. Yo, this is yeah. me shouting out Zena Sarawiwa. Your Table Manners series is brilliant and it's wonderfully kind of sensual and all about the joy of eating 
Nigerian food with your hands noisily. Brilliant. Yes. So my son, <laughs> is, your daughter, is your daughter into ASMR yet? No, she's not into ASMR. She's currently on the baking. She's on the baking right. round, watching people make cakes and cupcakes and all that stuff. Like, I don't know how Zena mics this up, but you just hear every inch of saliva in the mouth. And it's, it's brilliant. I love Ugh. it. <laughs> it's wonderful. That'll make my stomach turn. <laughs> you got to watch it. You got to get Zena on this. She's always done really interesting work on film but around kind of, you know, African cultures. Mm. She's always been interested in food. And this Table Manners series from a couple of years back is is beautiful. We'll have to look it up. Yes. But that's tell us and tell the listeners, please, what you're working on now so that we can see some of your work. I am just about to release my new short film, I guess. It's going to be part of the London Film Festival in October. It's called Leave the Edges, and it's an art film that kind of, well, just explores various types of cultural expression across the African diaspora, Mm -hmm. from Mm -hmm. Europe to the Caribbean to the continent. So that's something I really enjoyed making with some really interesting collaborators both in front and behind the camera mm-hmm. what with a couple of brilliant young black cinematographers on this uh Fola Abatan shout out to Fola and uh Joel Honeywell and there's an incredible dude I worked with in Guadeloupe called Ludovic Claire as well yeah and it just features different people exploring their craft and cultures in the kind of African context. But we've got people in Germany, we've got people in France, we've got people in, in Guadeloupe, we've got, you know, people exploring dance and movement, as well as kind of spirituality and kind of colonial right. legacies. So the whole thing's kind of like weaved together like a dream, really, to, to really mm-hmm. create like a visual tapestry. And working with uh, incredible musician called Alphamist, who is, I think he's a genius. Yeah. And I'm whispering it because I don't want to jinx anything, but I think he's, okay. he's really, <laughs> no, because he's like, he's still young, right? And he's still yeah. building his kind of repertoire and, and reputation. And, but I think he's the most incredible young man and uh, and there's nothing he can't do right like he mm. from jazz to hip-hop to broken beat like he's he's just so fluid in his artistry so yeah we're lucky enough to have him on the score nice. and also a couple of other musicians uh rob corcoran out of dublin marky stolen bathia Barts, who do some incredible kind of string work yeah anyway it's i'm in love with this film and you can see it at the London Film Festival in October. What are the dates? Well, this is the thing. Because of COVID, it's virtual, right? So there's no there's no mm-hmm. actual cinemas, which is a shame on the one hand, but kind of feeds into, you know, post-COVID life. And the good thing is it's going to be online for everybody who wants to watch it. So you don't have to schlep to London to kind of sit in a COVID cinema. Down. 
Yeah. Yeah. But it's going to be available at the start of the London Film Festival on October 7th until the end of the festival on the 18th. So, nice. yeah. I look forward to catching it. Go watch it. I know, I know you two, as the dance connoisseurs you are, will find it quite interesting. And Great. You guys know Yinka, right? You know Yinka, Grace. Yeah. Is she yeah. part of it? Oh, excellent. Yeah. Yinka's a huge part oh, of it. Oh, exciting. I love her. She's brilliant. Yeah. And if you know about Yinka's journey, you know, it's it's just, it's that thing we were talking about, you know, where you marry your purpose to the tools available. And, mm-hmm. you know, she, she similarly to myself, we've, we're kind of really interested in exploring kind of the roots of culture and, and how certain things have come to kind of be and some of the work she's doing at the moment I'm, I'm a big fan of and I was really honoured and happy that she agreed to be part of this so nice. yeah, go check it out we will definitely check that out and listeners make sure you do that as well Yeah, we'll have some links that we'll include to direct you to all that information Bath go ahead and tell us where we can learn more about you and your work where should people check you out website social handles yeah, I'm terrible at this part. It's Instagram at Baf underscore Akoto, Twitter at Baf Akoto, and Facebook. Yeah, if you know me, then you got me on Facebook, innit? So. Yeah, but we might have listeners that don't know you. Yeah, but you don't want to be on my Facebook if you don't know me. It's like full of uh, okay. nonsense. <laughs> okay, so we follow you on or follow you on Instagram, but listeners, leave them alone on Facebook. No. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for sharing your journey and insights with us. It has been very enjoyable to listen to how you've built a career as an international artist. And we are really looking forward to sharing it with our listeners, Beth. Thank you. Yes, be sure to check out his latest film when the film festival starts. And of course, it's online. So everybody can join us in watching that and share your thoughts and send Baf some love. And Baf, we cannot wait to have you back and join us at a real dinner table. Make sure we have the rice, you know, the the jollof. Make sure we have it. We have it ready for our food. I'll bring some yams. I know how to make that good southern candied yams. And you have a taste of that. Right. And there's just so much stuff that I wanted to talk to you about. So we could definitely have to have you back. We didn't even get into the whole streaming revolution and like what that impact is going to have on the film industry, consumption and creation, but we'll have to bring you back so we can discuss all of that and talk about future mm-hmm. projects. Yeah. Cool. Happy to, happy to. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bath, for joining us. We really appreciate it. We're going to take a quick break, digest everything that he shared with us. And when we come back, it'll be time to indulge in a little dessert. And we're back. It is time for our sweet and savory desserts. We're going to recap those moments in the conversation with Bath that gave us a nice sweet sugar rush or our other richer stick to the stomach, more fulfilling tidbits. So for me, my sweet moment was when he said his home is wherever his mom is or his kids are. That was just a little sweet family um, moment because, you know, we've had a lot of different answers 
everyone identifies home as different things, but of course, home is where your family are. Mm-hmm. What about you, Kamara? Uh, my sweet moment was definitely when he was talking about cooking rice um, mm-hmm. and burning burning rice and how there was always a smell of burnt rice in his house yeah. as they learned how to cook rice. So yeah, so that was just a bit of, bit of fun. I think we've all can relate to that, except for myself. Mm-hmm. Always used to rice cooker, but yes, other than that, <laughs> I think, you will learn how to make it with the I don't want to. Don't make Why? me. Why? Don't don't <laughs> <laughs> what about your savory moment? Uh, my savory moment, which uh, I had to write down, he said, "Purpose presents itself to you sooner or later, and it's mm-hmm. whether you choose to listen to it or not." Mm-hmm. So I thought yeah. that was quite profound. Yeah, that was definitely a good one. That was a good mm-hmm. one. Yeah. My savory moment was actually closer to your sweet. So, mm-hmm. you know, we actually came up with this together, I would say. It's not just something he said, but when we said you have to burn a few pots mm-hmm. and how that relates to, you know, that experience. You know, we were talking about specifically learning how to cook rice with your mom or whoever your your elder is in your family that's teaching you, passing on those traditions. Mm-hmm. And you have to learn, you know, your rite of passage is learning how to do it and you might make a few mistakes. But that also can apply to how you move in your life and your career. You know, you're, you're going to burn a few pots, you're going to burn a few bridges, but that's just how you get that experience of mm-hmm. becoming a leader or becoming the best at what you do. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's it for today. We'd like to thank you for listening. Please let us know what your sweet and savory moments were using the hashtag Yams and Yuka. That's right. Don't forget to tag us at Yams and Yuka on Twitter and at Yams and Yuka Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Alternatively, you can email us at Yams and Yuka Podcast at gmail.com. Again, our email is Yams and Yuka Podcast at gmail.com. Yes, we want to hear your thoughts on today's conversation. So let's keep the discussion going. Feel free to share your stories as well as add them to our Yams and Yuka tapestry. We'll chat with you guys again next time. Bye. Bye.